All right, um, what I want to do right now is I want to just read the passage. We've been in a little mini-series going through what we were just describing as the seven last things of Jesus. We've been describing these as the most important words of Jesus. If you guys don't have a Bible, why don't you raise your hand? We have ushers that would love to get you a Bible. These are the uh, last statements of Jesus that he speaks that are recorded for us from dying on the cross. And we've been looking at them consecutively each by each week by week, just trying to absorb and make sense of these claims that Jesus made. Today, we're looking at the little phrase, it is finished. I'm going to read the passage to you, and then we will just jump right in and get to work. Um, John chapter 19, verse 28 through 30. Uh, you can follow along. It's either up on the screen, or if you guys have your Bibles, why don't you open up there, and I'm just going to read this. It says, Jesus, knowing that all was now <clears throat> finished, said, parentheses, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. And a jar of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch, and they held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And then he bowed his head, and he gave up his spirit. And this is the word of the Lord. Since I already prayed, we're just going to jump right in. So what I want to do is I quickly just want to point out just a few observations I think that are just significant. Number one, um, this little statement of Jesus, it is finished, is only recorded by, by John. Um, it's an important statement of Jesus, but John's the only one that records this little saying of Jesus. Uh, the second thing I think that's kind of significant or in terms of observation is that this phrase that we have, three words in English, it is finished, is actually one word in Greek, and it's uh, teleos or telos, uh, Teleo, different ways to describe it, different variations of the same word, telos. Um, and really, this speaks of this idea of an ultimate purpose or conclusion. It's one of the reasons why uh, some of our translations might just say it is finished. Um, others of you may have heard, if you had had some sort of a Christian background, whatever, you may have heard the phrase paid in full. Um, that's what Jesus is saying. All of these are kind of variations of the same idea. In other words, uh, the, the concept, in fact, in Greek uh, philosophy, you may have been familiar with the, the word telos. The telos of something is the idea of the, the end or the aim for which something was created. or it's the, it, it involves this concept of design. So if something is designed, the idea behind the design is that that widget or whatever it is that was designed has an end game in sight. And this is the word that was recorded about Jesus, that when he said on the cross, it is finished is what's happening here. So it, again, it involves this idea of uh, ultimate purpose or a conclusion of an act or reaching an ultimate end or an aim is in mind. So in other words, uh, and we see this word actually kind of play throughout multiple times throughout John's account, which is important. So again, it's also well to note that the way that first century people typically would read passages of scripture like this is they wouldn't read passages of scripture like this. They would sit down and read the entire book. So again, I know in our distracted culture and community where it's hard to even get past 180 digits um, or you know anything of that nature, um, they would sit down for very lengthy periods of time and have someone read the entire story that was delivered to them. So in this case, John's uh, book would be read to them, and they would make special note of certain words that would arise um, thematically that would be repeated. And, and this particular word, telos, teleos, would be a reoccurring word that would uh, pop up. Um, so in other words, there, it's a clue that John is basically saying, leading all the way up to the point of Jesus on the cross, saying it is finished, which again, as readers, we should ask the question, what is finished? 
And that's what I want to explore today. Like, what is finished? What was Jesus saying is concluded? What was his end game? What was he going for? And this is an important thing. So whatever is going on here, Jesus is declaring that his purpose in life and death on the cross has been completed or accomplished something. All right, let's talk a little bit about the idea of purpose or the idea of meaning in life. Uh, Did you know that really according to many psychologists as well as sociologists, that the idea of meaning and purpose are ultimately crucial to human flourishing? Like there's a lot of study about this recently, especially over the past 50 or so years, that ultimately when absent, depression, aggression, and oftentimes addiction become familiar experiences. So I want you to pause and think about that. Just think about COVID. For the past two years, two and a half years, uh, it's kind of caused us to be on lockdown, to reevaluate. Some of us have lost our jobs. Some of us has not been going to our jobs the way that we used to be. Uh, it's caused us to rethink even how our family operates and functions and how we do homeschooling and do we homeschool. How does all this kind of work? It's caused, I mean, drinking has gone off the charts over the past two years, like beyond than it's ever been, according to the research of all of this. But the point of the matter is that what a lot of these psychologists, sociologists are describing is that when a sense of purpose and meaning become lost or evasive or difficult to explain or define or there's no clarity with regard to what that looks like, then it oftentimes leads to these uh, experiences, these pathologies. So again, just I want you to pause and think about this to just consider that have you as a regular season of life found yourself in states. And I don't mean just like an occasional, periodic, episodical state of depression. I mean regular. It's just consistent. You can't break out of it of depression. Maybe not depression. You're just angry. You just want to fight something. You go and you just rage on social media. And it's just, again, everything over the past few years have just led to this. Or what about addiction? Now, once you get to the end of yourself and you just feel filthy and horrible as a human being or you're just tired, you feel entitled and you just turn to some form of self-medication, all of these, trace them back upstream and you will discover there's probably a deep sense or an absence or void of any form of meaning, purpose in life. That's the reality. It's interesting, there's a guy by the name of Dr. Viktor Frankl. I read uh, his book over the past few days. And if you've never read it, just you have to read at least his story about his life. Just, you know, Google it, search on Amazon. But he describes this idea of, uh, he's actually a Holocaust survivor. He spent uh, from four different camps, nonetheless, like four, his wife, his kids, entire family was eradicated from the uh, Holocaust. Uh, he died around the 90s, and he was actually the, the forerunner, the guy that kind of formulated a particular psychological, psychotherapeutic uh, method called logotherapy. And the big idea behind this is that he had a lot to really consider and think about, especially coming through Nazi Germany, the belittling, dehumanization that he had experienced there in a Nazi Germany camp, coming at the other end. And he had to think a lot about the concept of, of meaning, how significant and important that is to life and flourishing. Uh, but Dr. Frank- Frankel basically would describe this idea of an existential vacuum. In other words, I'm break it down, the idea of a vacuum, a void um, with regard to existence, purpose of existence, existential vacuum. And he goes on to describe, and these are my words, can often result in diminished will to live in this state. People either do 
uh, what others are doing, which he describes as conformism, or they end up doing what others tell them to do, which is totalitarianism. So just think about that. Like, uh, again, social media, we tend to think, like, I'm a self-made human being. Really? Really? Or are you just doing what everybody else is doing, conformism? Or are you just doing what is being demanded of you because the social media mobs are forcing you into a certain form of conformity, totalitarianism? He goes on to say that depression, aggression, and addiction can be traced upstream to meaninglessness. Schopenhauer, a German philosopher, died in the 1860s. He said this, In a state of lacking meaning and purpose, mankind is doomed to vacillate between two extremities of distress and boredom. Distress and boredom. Think about that. Like, this was written a long time ago. Uh, he didn't even have an opportunity to peer into the future. And here we are living in a particular society. And I actually wonder if, if boredom is actually causing more problems than, than distress. Where's bored? Bored. You know, it kind of leads to this doom scrolling. You spend an hour on your bed just scrolling mindlessly. And at some point there's an ache deep inside that's just longing for something. And it's just not coming. It's not coming. Uh, why? There's a, there's a boredom. Follow that upstream. What you'll discover, there's a lack of meaning or purpose in life. Why are we even here? What am I even doing? Why do I even wake up in the morning? Why should I even go to bed? Why should I even work out? Why should I even bother eating well? Why should I even do anything? Why should I even care? Am I even alive? I don't even really know if I'm alive. I can't even tell if I can feel. Maybe I'll cut myself. Maybe I'll do some self-harm just to see if I can actually feel something. This is the state of America 2022. But it's not all doom because there's deep hope. Because what if, what if the teaching that we'll look at here today, the words of Jesus, it is finished, which really is nothing short than a declaration of a purpose statement of life. I came to accomplish something. My life, Jesus would say, has a very specific purpose. And that purpose is one in which I invite you into to help shape and reform and transform who you are so that his purpose becomes your purpose and gives you a whole new life. This is where it gets really awesome. So with that being said, um, what Jesus is really describing and what I want to begin to look at are kind of follow the, the trail of clues that John drops for us throughout the book. And we'll just kind of go through a, kind of a quick uh, survey or overview of many of these passages that kind of link uh, what Jesus is saying there on the cross where he describes it is finished with all of these other clues kind of go downstream. So uh, I want to take a look at a handful of passages. So if you guys have your Bible ready to go, we'll take a look at a handful of these things. So the big idea that I really want to tackle a question is what purpose was Jesus ultimately fulfilling? Like what was he seeking to fulfill? What does John want for us to know as we follow these clues? So number one, let's take a look at in John chapter 1, verse 29. John chapter 1, verse 29. I'll read it. Uh, this uh, is a reference to a guy by the name of John the Baptist. He shows up, if you're familiar with him, the baptizer, crazy dude who's out there baptizing along the Jordan. He's kind of the leader of one of these uh, religious sects within Judaism that's kind of bringing people back to God. And so Jesus goes out to go visit. And by the way, he's actually Jesus' cousin. Uh, Jesus goes out to him, and it says the next day in verse 29, he, was, he saw Jesus coming toward him. Uh, and then John the baptizer said, behold the Lamb of God. <laughs> The behold the lamb of God. Wait, uh, I thought lambs have four legs. Jesus has two. Like, what's going on here? Obviously, metaphorical. What what John is saying here, uh, I like to think of it as a hyperlink. It's a hyperlink that takes you back. It 
connects you to this entire rich historical storyline of the people of Israel. Again, the idea of a Lamb of God has its uh, formation and foundation in the story of the book of the Exodus. So you guys are familiar with the Passover, kind of within that season right now, uh, leading up to this time where a Passover lamb was sacrificed. And what John is saying is that whoever Jesus is, whatever Jesus is, whatever his mission, his goal was, is deeply tethered to this Lamb of Godness, which does what? Listen, who takes away the sin of the world. So whatever we know about Jesus so far up until this point, again, following the clues, we know that it involves deliverance from sin. Deliverance from sin. Secondly, uh, why don't you turn quickly to John chapter 4 as we kind of follow these, uh, this little trail here. John chapter 4, verse 31 says this. Now, this is, uh, if you're familiar with the story, Jesus goes along with his disciples in this little village. It was a Samaritan village, which, again, back in that day, um, there was a deep racial divide between Jews uh, who were, you know, fully ethnic sons and daughters of Abraham and the Samaritans, which were basically half-breeds, meaning uh, there was some form of connection to the tribe and the lineage of Abraham, though there was also a kind of a misbreedness in that. And they also worshiped God in some very distinct, unique ways that were different then and distinct from the Jews. So in other words, there was this clash. Jews, for the most part, did not like Samaritans, and Samaritans kind of return the favor. And so here Jesus goes in there at the middle of the day, he goes and hangs out this well. And you guys are probably familiar with it. There's this uh, Samaritan woman that comes out. She begins to pull water. Jesus starts up a dialogue with her, which again, which is sketchy. Jesus, who is Jewish, Jesus, who is also a Jewish rabbi, meaning that he was trained as a teacher of the law, um, and he had a following. Um, back in that day, it was, it was not cool. Like, I know today's day, it's like, it's cool to like, you know, have dialogue and with other people they don't even know. But especially back in that day, the idea of a, a male having dialogue with a female uh, that he didn't know, that he was obviously not going to be interested in marrying. But not only that, but it was also part of a different race was just very taboo. You would not do that uh, lest you be viewed as just, you know, sketchy, sketchy behavior, scandalous behavior. But Jesus, nonetheless, doesn't care really at the end of the day about scandalous behavior because he actually cares about people. This is the beautiful like distinction between religion, which is all about setting up rules and regulations and certain you know codes of honor, and Jesus, who's just like, hey, I don't care who you are, what type of stuff you got going through, what type of baggage you're carrying, I love you. Let's have dialogue. Let's talk. Let's figure things out. And so Jesus has dialogue with this gal. She goes away. She begins to tell all of her friends what's going on, that she has found what she believes is the Messiah. Now, the disciples come walking up, and this is where we pick up the story, verse 31. Then the disciples, they came back, they were urging Jesus, Rabbi, eat. But then he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, uh, has somebody brought him something to eat? And Jesus then goes on to say, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. So that word, accomplish his work in red, is actually the word teleo. So uh, again, what's Jesus doing? This is, this is one of those like, like have, did, did any of you read Jesus and you're like, what in the world is he talking about? What? I have food to eat that none of you even know about? Uh, again, uh, welcome to the club. Welcome to the club. Sometimes Jesus is hard to understand. Even his own disciples were like, what is he talking about? Like, did someone give him food? Like, where's, what happened here? And so what Jesus is saying here, whatever his hunger, his deep ache and hunger and longing was for, it's really not just simply to be satisfied with, with good food. Now, um, but, but it's really this idea of saying, I want to do what the Father 
calls me to do and to finish that. That's my aim, to finish, to be faithful, to carry it to its ultimate conclusion. But then the question then arises, then what is that? What is, in this context, John telling us that Jesus' aim to accomplish the Father's will is? Well, he goes on to tell us. Verse 35. Do you not say there are yet four months that then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. And then verse 39 kind of tells us the conclusion. Again, this is John telling us the story with a distinct aim of leading us on this trail to understand what does it mean for Jesus to accomplish whatever it was that he was accomplishing in that last uh, day. Then he goes on to uh, say in verse 39, that many Samaritans, they believed Jesus because of the woman's testimony. So just got to pause and think about this. Many Samaritans. In other words, people outside of the, the, the crew, people that you are not necessarily going to normally like, people that are not welcomed company in certain circumstances. These are the people that Jesus cares about. And it's not just at the exclusion of Jewish people, but it's at the inclusion of people that are viewed as outsiders. Like, this is mind-blowing. And this would have blown the minds of the disciples. And again, at other points in the church's history, they, they wrestled with this. Like, who really is in? Who really is out? Who really is accepted? Who's really rejected? And what we see so far in the story is that whatever it was that Jesus came to accomplish or whatever he came to finish, it includes or involves this idea of forming a community of people that are comprised of all people. Hence the idea that Jesus says, lift up your eyes. The harvest is ripe. Uh, the big idea of the harvest is the ingathering. Think of you know, looking at a massive field and stalks of grain are over there and stalks of grain are way out over there and stalks of grain are way out over there. And the big idea is to bring them all together. It's an ingathering. And Jesus is saying, whatever it is that he came to accomplish involves bringing people from very far places together. I mean, maybe that's a word for some of you right now. Maybe you have looked at your life and felt very far from God. You come to church and you feel kind of on the outskirts. You feel as if you're in the margins. You look at Christian people. You're like, I don't really relate to them. I don't really know. Look, I get it. I know what that's like. There's so many times at my own life, I just kind of look at sort of the Christian landscape. I'm like, I don't know, man. Like, some of the stuff that Christians do, I'm just like, this is, this is lame. This is just straight up lame. And I don't even, I can't, I can't relate to this. I mean, can I get an amen, right? Uh, but the point that I'm making is that, that Jesus actually cares about all people. And this is what he's up to in this world. So whatever it was that he came to accomplish, John wants us to know that it involves uh, a pit stop at this trailhead to say it involves bringing together people that are far, far away from God, and far, 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 far outside of the scope of acceptables. Maybe they're viewed as deplorables by some within an in-group. And Jesus says, no, no, those people, they're not deplorable to me. They're the ones that I've come for. All right, let's jump on in this trail to look at the last thing, and this is the idea of John chapter 17. Why don't you turn there real quick, John, I'm sorry, John chapter 5, verse 17, John chapter 5, 17. And we go on to read this little segment here, verses 7 to 18. Uh, again, a little bit of the backstory. Jesus comes on the scene. One of the things that Jesus oftentimes does, he doesn't work according to the typical traditional methods of the uh, religious leaders of his day. We should be grateful for that. Um, but what Jesus does, he actually heals somebody on the Sabbath. Again, which, according to the traditions, uh, was sort of taboo. He just did not do that. But Jesus is like, I don't really care. 
as much about the situations as you do. Uh, I care more about the people. And if a person is hurting, I don't care what day it is, I'm going to step in and work and help them. That's what Jesus does. So obviously you can imagine this kind of creates a sense of uh, frustration and angst amongst the religious elites. And then they turn to Jesus and it goes on this dialogue. Then Jesus said to them in this dialogue, my father is working and I am working. So again, they confront Jesus. Why are you healing on a Sabbath? Um, again, this idea of Sabbath. Do you guys know what the word Sabbath means typically? It doesn't mean rest. What does Jesus say that God is doing on the Sabbath? Ooh, ouch. <laughs> it's a little bit of a, a rub going on there. And it's, it, Jesus is implying that it's not just the Father that's working. He's also working as well but with the Father, right? So he's kind of aligning himself with Jesus. And just in case you might think, well, I'm not really sure about that, uh, we'll get to the end and it'll give some clear evidence that this is exactly how they interpret that and that's exactly what Jesus was saying. Then Jesus said, my Father's working and I am working and the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Jesus because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was also calling God his own Father, making himself equal to be God. Uh, there's a myth in our modern culture today that says, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. Maybe Jesus was just a really good teacher, kind of like a Buddha or an enlightened individual. And that's about the extent of who he was. He was really good at what he did. He healed people. He was kind. He was compassionate. He was kind of a social justice warrior of the first century. Maybe that's who Jesus was. And, and the, the fact is that Jesus, that, that cannot be what Jesus was claiming. He was put to death. He incited violence against him, not he, but those that took what he was saying and were deeply offended by that, they killed him because of that. Jesus is claiming very clearly here that, no, the Father and I are one, harmonious in our efforts, harmonious in our aims and our agendas are the same. Whatever the Father wants to do, that's what I'm here to represent on this planet, to break forth his healing kingdom in this world. And there's going to be those that are like, I'm in. <laughs> and there's going to be those that are like, no. I want my agenda. In which, again, we're, we're clearly pointed out here what their agenda is. Their agenda is holding on to the Sabbath, holding on to certain uh, religious rights. Uh, later on, I can't remember what chapter it is. Uh, I don't even have it on here in my notes. Um, but it describes that the religious leaders get angry at Jesus because he threatens their temple. So they saw themselves as protectors of this sacred brick-and-mortar space. And what Jesus is ultimately saying, like, look, I care about people. You guys seem to care about peripherals and principles and legal things. I care about people. We go on to read in this story that Jesus goes on to describe in verse 36. So skip on down a little bit. Read verse 36 to 38. It says, uh, the works of the Father... He has given me to accomplish. And here's our word again, teleo. Uh, again, a mission statement. What is Jesus here to do? Well, whatever it was, it involved these works that he's doing. And then the very works I'm doing bear witness that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has also borne witness of me. So what we know so far, again, is number one, whatever it was that Jesus was coming to do, his fulfillment, his purpose involved deliverance from the enslavement of sin. It involved this idea of forming a community that is comprised of all people, all stripes, all colors, all varieties, all across the world, to become part of this gathering, this family, this community, that begin to trust 
Jesus. Now, again, I want to be really clear on this. This is not just some sort of vague community that people get to pick and choose how they want to follow Jesus. No. What it means to follow Jesus is to say, Jesus, you are master, Lord of my life, not my heart. I don't live according to how the dictates of my heart lead me or guide me. This is not about the modern myth that basically says you get to craft and create your own potential self. That is antithetical to what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. What it means to be a disciple of Jesus is to say, I don't even know what my truly authentic self is. Whatever my truly authentic self is, I will lay that down at the foot of Jesus because whatever self it is that he has for me is far better, far weightier, far more lasting, far more creative than anything I could ever even dream of. And his ways are higher and greater than my ways. That's what it means to follow Jesus, is to say, I will lay my life. And whatever that is, whatever definitions that I have, try to create, whatever definitions that have been superimposed upon my understanding of self, based upon the culture around me, I will lay that down at his feet and allow him to be the one to reshape me into his likeness and image. It's a radically counter-community. And then thirdly, it involves framing eternal life around Jesus. Very clearly. Again, this is what Jesus is saying here really clearly. Verse 37 of chapter 5, John says, The Father who sent me has himself borne witness of me. And what I think Jesus is saying here very clearly is that whatever it is that he's up to in this world, the Father has put his full, complete stamp of approval upon it. Just pause and think about that. So just in case if this is a little bit vague still, I want to read one more passage that will maybe help bring this into sharp relief and clarity. John chapter 17, verses 1 through 5, and this is our last one, and I want to finish up. John chapter 17, verses 1 through 5, it goes on to say, Jesus, now this is, if you're familiar with this, uh, was commonly known as Jesus' high priestly prayer, where he, just before he dies, he says this incredibly beautiful prayer. Read it on your time. It's amazing. John chapter 17, verses 1 through 5 says this, Jesus then spoke in these words, Father... The hour has come, glorify your son, that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. He goes on to say in verse 4, I have glorified you on earth, having finished, there's our word again, the work that you gave me to do. Did you get that? What Jesus is saying here, clearly, is salvation. What, the question is, what is salvation? Did you read anything here about, like, saying a Jesus prayer of faith? Did you read anything in there about making sure that you have daily devotionals? Did you read anything in there about playing a harp on a cloud? None of the above. Not that any of those are non-important. Reading scripture, whatever. That, all that stuff's important. But none of those are what Jesus had in mind that he describes are linked to this concept of eternal life. So what is it? Well, he clearly says eternal life is, listen to verse 3, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is not vague spirituality. We live in a world today where there's been sort of a resurgence of spiritualism, which it's kind of awesome because we went through a series, I think, throughout American history um, that was very, like, anti-anything spiritual. And that was sort of the results of, you know, if you're familiar with this stuff, like modernism and then postmodernism, kind of choosing, creating, crafting your own kind of uh, authentic reality. But the point of the matter is that I think there's been a deep, uh, there's a, 
an attempt to try to untether culture at large from any form of historical, religious, spiritual roots from the past. But I think what's happened now is people are kind of like, man, we, we're missing something deeply inside of our soul. And there's, I don't know if you know this or not, but there's a radical resurgence uh, return back to like old school paganism. Like that's not, I, I remember reading an article not too long ago. It said uh, uh, um, ex-Christian has now become a witch. And that's, that doesn't mean that she became a really nasty person, though she may be a nasty person, but that's not, that's neither here nor there. But the point of the matter is, the idea of witch, like, she actually become a witch. And, and I, I'm saying that in a derogatory sense, like, became an actual diviniz- divinizing, right, I guess is the word, divinizing practitioner of the ancient black arts. Why? Why, why is it happening? Because I think there's a deep ache in people's soul for some form of connection to something beyond just this physical, tangible realm and reality. I think, honestly, that's kind of what the metaverse is going to touch into as well when we move into that sphere of the world over the next five to ten years. But the fact of the matter is, this is what Jesus is saying here is not just simply some vague spirituality. He's saying eternal life, true life, is found in direct response and relationship to me and the Father. Deeply tethered to Jesus. I've said this before on a couple of occasions. I didn't make this up. It came from a guy named James K. Smith. He describes this idea as a culture at large. We long for the kingdom, all the kingdom values. We long for a sense of justice. We long for a sense of goodness. We long for a sense of beauty to kind of permeate planet Earth. But in short, we long for the kingdom without a king. Utopia doesn't work. We ha- it comes as a package. Jesus, the king, brings the kingdom. And I think this is exactly what he's saying. So I want to conclude with this last little movement, going back to Jesus there on the cross. Again, if you want to think about this, um, the three things that we looked at. But I want to just finish with the words of Jesus on the cross again and listen to it. Jesus, knowing that all is now finished, said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. What did Jesus accomplish? I think very clearly he came to accomplish these three things. You can go back to the slide real quick. We looked at the deliverance from the enslavement of sin, the formation of a community that was comprised of all people, and then ultimately the framing of eternal life exclusively around himself. So in this, if you want to kind of think about this even in a broader way, Jesus is radically inclusive where he just, extends the invitation to all, any and all. But it's also radically exclusive, where he says salvation, life, true life, eternal life, is found nowhere on this planet outside of me. I've come to bring something and to finish something and to accomplish something that nothing else on this planet is able to bring forth. No maxims, no manifestos, no aims, no agendas, no matter how much money gets dropped into some sort of bucket that's going to help social justice issues, none of that. All of it may have various relevance in certain contexts, but none of it will ultimately bring anything that's long-lasting or sustainable the way that Jesus does. So I want to finish with this final question. What would it look like for us to live as if Jesus truly did accomplish all of this on the cross? I want to finish with this thought. In other words, all of these most significant pathologies that you and I face, what would it look like to live as if this truly 
happened, that Jesus addressed these head on, conquered them, and recrafted something entirely brand new around himself and invited you into that full-blown participation. I said this before. It's like John Wimber used to say, everybody gets to play. Everybody gets a part of this landscape, to be a part of this work that Jesus is doing that he broke forth on the cross. In other words, the words of Jesus, it is finished on the cross, speak something to the world and to you. What would it look like to live according to that? Let me ask you in another way. What would it look like to live knowing that your greatest debts have been paid in full? Do I hear student loans out there? Anybody? Student loans? Anybody? Credit card debt? Having credit, creditors call you up like, hello, knocking on your door, whatever. You know, we need, you need to pay your bill. Uh, what about those of you that have a mortgage that's beyond what you're capable of paying? What about those of you that have a car payment because you have this sense of bravado that you need, like, you bought more car than what you really need, only to impress people that really don't even like you, that you're like, I need this vehicle, and now I got a car payment that's beyond you, and you're just under debt. <laughs> what would it look like to live as if our greatest debt has been covered? You've been forgiven. You've been washed. And we get to live in a context right now knowing that some of the most significant challenges and hardships that we face have been taken care of. What would it look like to live knowing that our deepest relational longings have been completely fulfilled in Jesus? Think about how many sleepless nights we have or lone, lonely days that we feel or a deep sense of loneliness we struggle with. And think about where that oftentimes darkness takes us. Think about being in a marriage where you may be deeply alone. That's one of the worst types of pathologies because we should have certain expectations to be met by our spouse, but they may not be meeting them in that deep sense of anxiety or angst. And that oftentimes leads us to do things that are way beyond. It leads us sometimes to boredom, a lack of meaningless. We don't know what we're really living for. We don't really know who we should love or who's really going to love us. And that leads us down this really dark path of anxiety, depression, and then some point down the road, addiction. But what would it look like to live? As if what Jesus was offering there in his final statement, it is finished. It's an invitation to a relationship with God that can never be erased. What if you, and what would it look like for us to live in a way in which we saw every single human being as valuable in the eyes of God? No matter what color of skin, no matter what type of religious background they have, no matter what types of struggles they find themselves facing, to live doesn't mean we have to agree with every little detail because we, we're not. Let's, just, let's be honest, we're not. But what would it look like to live with a deep sense of dignity and value and respect being shown to all people, no matter what and wherever they're at on this journey? To live in such a way to give value so that the prejudice and the resentments and the grievances that we oftentimes nurture have been completely addressed and dealt with by Jesus and then brought us into a whole new way of being human. So think about this. Whatever was happening there on the cross, Jesus knew that the plight that you and I faced, the pathologies that you and I deal with, were so bad, so bad, that he looked them square in the eye and allowed them to do the worst to him on the cross. There's two words that kind of came to me yesterday, and I'll throw them out to you, and I'm done. Weightiness 
and wonder, weightiness, the weightiness of the cross. Whatever was happening on the cross, whatever was taking place, it was so significant, so bad. Whatever was happening in humanity, in your life, in my life, in human history was so bad that there's only one cure. And it was only big enough so that God himself, the creator, stepped into his creation to allow the destruction and destructiveness of it to do to him what it is constantly without break, doing to each one of us. Disorienting us, destroying us, dehumanizing us, killing us. He takes it upon himself. But the flip side of the weightiness element is the wonder. How amazing is that, that he did this for you? Why? Because he, he loves you. He loves this humanity that he created. I think God grieves when he sees the brokenness in our world. He grieves over the war and the bloodshed and the dehumanizing activities that we oftentimes engage in and the fears and anxieties that people face just living in life, making their way through life. He grieves us and he invites us to live in a way that's receiving the gift that he has made clear and available through Jesus. So I don't know where you're at, but for some of us, maybe this is the moment to really do business with God. I'm going to have Mikey come on up and just in the next few moments together as we respond, my invitation to you is to just let God transform and shape you. Let let the message of Jesus' final words here, it is finished. Maybe breathe something fresh and new in your heart. Maybe ask God what would it look like for you to step into that fully What are those areas in your life right now where maybe there's a degree of distrust or cynicism? Or maybe it's like, I tried that Christian stuff, but I don't know. It didn't work for me. Move on to something else. Maybe it wasn't Christian stuff you tried. Maybe it was just some sort of religious stuff you tried. Maybe the invitation is to come back to Jesus, to look him in the eyes. And to see the love that he invites you into, to be remade, to be renewed, to be restored. And to live in a way that is in alignment with him as a king. The question that just pops in my head is, is Jesus trustworthy? Because that's the big question I think we all deal with. You know, it's like if you're going to choose to go out on a date with somebody that you, you know, find on an app or whatever. It's like, I don't really know. Are they trustworthy? Are they axe murder? I don't really know. Like, it's a good question, by the way. Good question. But is, is, Jesus, is Jesus an axe murder? Is Jesus trustworthy? Just look at the cross. That's all I'm telling you to do is just look at the cross. Listen to his words. Follow the trail of breadcrumbs throughout the entire story of his life. Is he trustworthy? Don't take my word for it. Take the word of the authors of scripture that form the foundation of the church. These aren't my words to you guys. These are the words that we inherited, that we get to proclaim and we get to live into.